So for now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I've entitled this sermon, Battle. You can say it two different ways. This is one of those things when you start quoting stuff, you're like, oh yeah, I think, I think this is said a different way. But you can hear this said, a battle royale with an E at the end or a battle royal. It's the same thing. And apparently, technically, and I didn't want to get any grammar policemen sending me an email later, it's battle royal. That's the technical term. But what is a battle royal? Or as I grew up with the WWF, the battle royale, right? The way I think about that is you got all these big wrestlers. They're all put in a cage and they just start duking it out. And then who wins? The last man standing. That's the key to the battle royale. And so it's just, I think, a fitting description here this morning, because what we're going to see and, and what we've been using as kind of a summary of the book of Ephesians, as you re- recall, is this, just this three-word summary, sit, walk, stand. And remember, chapters one through three was the sit section. And why do we call it that? Well, it's because it, he doesn't tell you anything to do. There's no commands in the first three chapters. He basically says, sit, get your popcorn ready, and I want you to hear about the greatness of what you've got in Jesus Christ. That's what chapters one through three is. Just enjoy your popcorn. Just enjoy what your hero has accomplished and hear all about the things that he's done for you. One through three, sit. Chapters four through about six, nine, we finished six, nine last week. It's the walk section. And you see all these different descriptions of walking, right? Walk in love, walk worthy, walk circumspectly, etc. You've got all these different angles of how you are now based on what you've got in Christ. How are you to live it out? That's the section we've been looking at. And this section that we're going to start today is really what we would call the stand section. And, and the reason for that is you're going to see the keyword stand repeated three or four times here in the first five verses of this section. And the idea is simply this. You are not fighting for victory in your Christian life. You are fighting from victory. You are standing with the one who is the last man standing. You are standing with him. You are under his wings, so to speak. You are unified to Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's the winner. He's the victor. He's the last man standing. And this is why the encouragement is, don't try to go duke it out with all of your spiritual enemies. Stand in victory with the victor. You know, Warren Wiersbe made a great quote, and he does that often. But he said, sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground, that he or she faces an enemy who is much stronger than they. And what we're going to learn in the passage today is, make no mistake, your enemy is mean, your enemy is smart, your enemy has a detailed game plan to destroy you. Make no mistake, it is dangerous to live life as a Christian, but also Make no mistake in understanding God has provided a way to protect you. God has provided a way to give you victory in all these areas. And this is what we're going to read about this morning. And a quick summary of the section can be simply put, if you like uh, quick summaries, I I do. It helps my, my simple brain keep things together. Verse 10, what to do. Verse 11, how to do it. Verse 12, why you should do it. How about that? What, how, And why? Let's go ahead and look at the what here in verse 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We see Paul uses this word finally oftentimes in his epistles, not to say like necessarily I'm wrapping up, but I'm dealing with one more topic before I wrap up. 
As I'm wrapping up, I'm going to deal with one more topic. This is the topic that he chooses to wrap up with. And he, and he gives this command, be strong. It's a command. But here's what's so interesting about this is that this Greek word used here is only found in the New Testament. It's not found in any other Greek literature that exists. Paul basically coined this term. He, he created a word. That's fun. That's, that's a man after my own heart right there, right? Creating your own words. Now, why do people typically coin their own words? Because there's something unique enough going on here that he can't find the words in the language to adequately describe it. So he creates a word. He creates actually a compound word here. And that compound word is comprised of a Greek preposition, en, which means in, and dunamao, which means to strengthen. And so when you put those two together, he is saying, strengthen yourself from within. Be, or as the title of that slide says, be in strengthened. Now, that's a really interesting phrase because I've grown up in churches where I've heard people all the time refer to other people as they're a really strong Christian. They're a really strong believer. You've probably heard that too. I mean, that's a pretty common way that we refer to somebody. And what we're trying to say is they're spiritually mature. We're just kind of using that as a moniker. But you know, oftentimes what ends up happening about that, and and I've asked people because I've been curious, well, what do you mean by that? And what they begin to list off is, is, a, is a rattled off list of legalistic things. That doesn't make a strong believer. That is not what Paul is talking about right here. He's not saying, hey, get your morning Devo a little bit more consistent. Hey, instead of praying one hour, pray two hours. He, he's not saying that at all. He's coming at it where? From where it actually counts. Internally, sourced from who? Not you and not your efforts, but from Jesus Christ and what he provides in and through us. It really focuses on the internal strengthening here, not the external. And so right away, he's, you can see he's describing something unique. This is not just going through the motions. This is not just getting your externals painted up. This is not putting lipstick on a pig, right? That's what we always say legalism is. This is something more than that. This is something from within. And so how are you strengthened from within. Well, before we look at that, it's a present tense command. Paul is wanting an immediate response. This is something that's urgent to the apostle Paul. This is, and you can see this all throughout the walk section, right? I feel like I've said that a million times over the last few months. It's present tense, it's immediate, it's urgent, and this is another one. It's urgent to be in strengthened. And oh, by the way, it's a passive voice. Again, Harkening back to what I just said, it's not you doing it. It's the Spirit of God doing it to you. It's the Spirit of God strengthening you from within. And so in that way, it also harkens back to 518, which we just can't, we just can't quite get away from that verse. And that's a good thing. We don't want to get away from that verse. That's the key, being filled by the Spirit. And so you see, it's the Spirit of God doing this. I love what some commentators say, again, just to bring out this, this continuity and this continual aspect. Keep on right now, continually allow yourself to be strengthened from within. Harry Ironside said, be constantly receiving strength from the Lord and go forth in the power of his might. And one of the things I think believers need to understand that you can be a believer for one year or you could have been a believer for 50 years. You don't lack the need for this in strengthening any day of your Christian life. Don't just assume 
because you've been a believer all your life or 20 years or 30 years that you don't no longer need this. That this isn't as urgent for you. This is just as urgent as the day after you got saved. Now, you know a lot more today, hopefully, by God's grace. You know a lot more than you did the day after you were saved. But the urgency of this is you need to take advantage of what you know more consistently and more urgently. He's going to give us the reason why for this in a second. And so how is the believer in strength? And well, really clearly, there's two parts here. God has a part and the believer has a part. And God's part is really easy to see because we, we again, we, we bank that off the passive voice. We know it's God himself providing strength, but how does he do it? What are the, the mechanisms by which he does it? Well, one of the things we see is, is for a believer, you've got the indwelling spirit of God. It's a permanent indwelling and that the spirit of God is active in renewing or strengthening our inner man. And thus ultimately strength comes from who? From the Lord. Specifically, strength comes from who? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That's where, who's the strengthener? In fact, it reminds me of what Paul prayed earlier in Ephesians 3.16, right? This is a prayer for the Ephesian believers. This is before he asked them to do anything. He's praying for them that he, speaking of God the Father, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, how? Through his spirit, where? In the inner man. This is the new man. This is a new creation in Christ that each one of us are the moment we're born again, that that is where the spirit of God wants to strengthen you. It's an internal strengthening via your inner man. Now, not trying to get too far off on a rabbit trail, but remember Paul describes the desires of the inner man in Romans chapter seven. But what was the problem there? You remember Romans chapter seven, the things I want to do, I can't do, the things I don't want to do, those are the very things that I keep doing. So the, the desires of the inner man are good, are right. They, they want to worship God. They want to serve God. What was the problem in Romans seven? There was no empowerment to execute the desires. Hence, the, the beautiful combination that comes forward in Romans chapter eight, which is mentioned here in, in Ephesians chapter 316, that you've got right desires in the inner man, and then you've got the spirit of God to empower you to execute those desires. You see, that's God's part. That's what God is doing. He is strengthening you from within. So if God's doing all this work, what's our part? Good, good question. We'll answer that in a second. But look at 2 Corinthians 4.16. And again, just to kind of reiterate what we've been talking about, therefore, we do not lose heart. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So how often is God renewing your inner man? How often is God strengthening or desiring to strengthen your inner man every single day of your life? You're going to face a tough day this week. You got a tough meeting coming up. You got a tough situation going on with a relative. He's renewing you every day. He wants to provide the strength from within to deal with any situation that you're facing in life. Now, how do we get the benefit of it? Well, if God's doing the work, what response in the Word of God always goes with God's work? It's not generally more work. It's reliance upon His work. It's faith, and this is why we walk by faith. We want to take in the word of God. Why? Because it gives us an object upon which to rely upon. And the word of God testifies to the greatest object that you can rely upon. It's not a thing. It's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. 
As we rely upon the Lord, as we are bought in that God's way and God's method and God's solution for a worthy walk is found in the life of Jesus Christ, then we are convinced we need to rely upon him more and more. And what we're going to see is this. Paul's going to illustrate this whole concept by bringing in another illustration. Good teachers oftentimes do what? Illustrate the truth they're trying to communicate. They try to illustrate it in a practical way so that, you know, as they tell us in seminary, I, well, I mean, I heard it in seminary. I don't know where it was said. But they say, they say what? Get the cookies off the top shelf and get them low so that everyone can reach the cookies. Everyone can get to the cookies. And that's the goal of teaching. And Paul does that, obviously, extremely well because he's going to use the example of putting on the whole armor as our response of faith. And he's going to give this and he's going to detail this illustration as we go. But notice this too, before we jump out of verse 10, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong, be in strengthened. And then he gives two spheres in which we are to be in strengthened. And this again goes right along with the fact that this is a divine operation from start to finish. This is not you gearing up and geeking up and, and gritting your teeth harder, that's not the Christian life. This is what the Christian life is about. It's tied to a person. In fact, notice there are two spheres here. And by the way, notice where the spheres are. It's in the Lord. It's in the power of his might. And if we haven't realized yet, we will by the time we get through the passage. The reason for this is the enemies are that crazy and outside of our control. The enemies are that severe that you need strengthening from within and you need the power of God to overcome these enemies. We don't realize that oftentimes. And, and we'll see that as we develop. So that first sphere is to be in strengthened in the Lord. Notice again that the in strengthening is always tied to a person. It's not God doling out strength independently of him, like $100 bills, like, oh, here you go. Here's, here's a little strength. Here's a little strength. Oftentimes, that's how we pray, though, right? If we're being honest, we're like, hey, Lord, I just give me a little strength today. Give me a little bit more strength. He doesn't want to give you a little bit of strength. He wants to give you Jesus Christ. <laughs> he wants to give you all the strength at his disposal. That's what he wants to provide for you, not just a little bit more. It's like when you used to borrow the car, when you were a teenager and go out and dad handed you a 20, you kind of wish he would have handed you the water 20s in his wallet, right? That's what God provides. He provides the water 20s. He's, he wants to provide the whole thing for you, not just a little. And so you see this connection to the Lord. And it can only happen as we're rightly related to the Lord in fellowship. There's a, there's a union emphasis here by saying, be strengthened in strengthened in the Lord. There's this connection to him. And then he says, be in strengthened in the power of his might. Again, whose power are we talking about here? We're talking about God's power. And he says, in the power of his might, it could be translated his mighty power, just depending on how you like to, to organize the words, but either one is fine. And, and interestingly enough, this second phrase, although it looks like a separate sphere, I believe it's actually just describing being strengthened in the Lord a little bit further. How are you strengthened in the Lord? Or what does that look like? Well, it's in the power of his might. In union with Jesus Christ, he wants to empower you. And we've got a, a great practical example um, in our day of electricity, right? Electricity only flows through uh, a line when, when a contact is made. As soon as that contact is disrupted, then electricity stops. And so in the same way, the power of God is designed to flow in 
and through us in our daily living. But if there's a disconnection in fellowship, there's going to be a disconnection in power. And this is why this encouragement, I think, is so important. Now, Paul, uh, if you remember, and it's been a few months, you slept a few times since then, all of us have. But if you remember back in chapter one, remember I, at the time I said chapter one is kind of like the, the power section of the Bible. You know, we got the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. This is kind of the power section. Go back with me to chapter one uh, in verse 19. And you may or may not recall this, but Paul in verses 19 through uh, 20, he uses four words that could all be translated power. All, they, they have different emphasis and aspects. But remember this, he says, what is the exceeding greatness? He wants us to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power, speaking of God's power, toward us who believe according to the working, that's another word, of his mighty power, same phrase that we're seeing here now in chapter six, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now go back to Ephesians chapter six, because what he's saying is, is guys, be in strengthened in the Lord. How? Through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same exact power that raised a man from the dead is the same exact power available to each one of us in this internal strengthening that Paul wants us to benefit from. In fact, there's different aspects to these words. I, I put the Greek word next to it so you can see the difference. The word power in this, in this verse means strength or might. But in contrast to just might, the other word used in this passage, this word emphasizes manifested power, executed power. This is power put into action. Okay, this is what this word emphasizes. The word might emphasizes or means physical strength, mental or moral power, but it emphasizes inherent power and capacity. In other words, what's available there, you may not see it executed, but it's there. It's inherent. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a bodybuilder who is also has another job as a, um, a, a bouncer or a, a bodyguard, you, you look at his body and you're like, yeah, there's some inherent power. I probably don't want to mess with that guy. But if I decide to mess with him and then he punches me in the, in the teeth, I'm like, wow, that was executed power. I felt it, right? And so did my mouth. And so that's kind of the distinction here. And so when you put those two together, the power of the might, it, it describes outward execution of an in inward resident power. Now, who's the inward resident power? I said this before but I, in the past, but I'll say it again. Anytime we're talking about inward resident power, we're not talking about you. We're not talking about your efforts. We're not talking about your spiritual muscles. We're talking about the spirit of God. We're talking about the inward resident power of the spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, did something where he reversed life's natural course of events. That's power. Same power is available to each one of us. This is where we need to be strengthened. Again, to illustrate, I think a bulldozer provides a great illustration. You see a bulldozer, you walk around, you look at the frame, you look at the tires, you look at the, the tools on the front of that thing, and you say, you know what? This thing's got some inherent power. It's got some might, using the words in our passage. It's got some might. But then someone fires it up. Someone starts the engine. You're like, whoa, man, that was louder than I thought it was going to be. That, that thing, I can tell, has got some power. And then it begins to move. And you're like, 
ooh, man, that tree better get out of the way, you know, because it's getting to take down. Or a house, even. You know, they use oftentimes a bulldozer to knock down a house. And then you see it knock down a tree with ease. You see it knock down a house and you're like, you're convinced of its execution of power. So what you knew was inherent, now you've seen it executed. And this is the same phrase that, that Paul uses here, that you would be in strengthened in the Lord, in the power, the inherent power of his executed manifestation power. That's, it's just beautiful. And that means this, that God's not a phony. He actually wants to do something through you. God's not just promising you something without the ability to execute on his promise. I love that about our God. Man, he's not a fake. He actually provides what he says he's gonna provide and then he can get it done. He can actually get it done. It's amazing. Not many people like that in our lives, is it? People let us down, don't they? God will never let us down. That's what's so encouraging about this truth. And so now we've seen the what, verse 10, what we are to do. And now we wanna look at how. And we're gonna see Paul use this illustration of the armor of God, putting on the whole armor of God. And so verse 11 reads this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word put on simply means to get dressed. It means to go under, get into a garment. So the idea is to put this armor on. Um, And this is an aorist tense command. And an aorist tense, it typically denotes a snapshot of an action. Sometimes it can refer to a completed action. Sometimes it can refer to a one-time event. But in this case, I believe the aorist tense is not referring to a one-time action, like, okay, put it on and, and just leave it on the rest of your life. But that in every instance that you are mentally engaged, that you are putting it on in this moment. And then in the next moment, you're putting it on. And in the next moment, you're putting it on. And in that sense, it's kind of a synonym for walking by faith. It's this ongoing, but, but, but very decisive acts of saying, I'm going to put on the whole armor of God. I'm going to be strengthened by the Lord in this situation. And this is more of a volitional. In other words, you're making the decision to trust in God's resources and not your own. And so he says, put on the whole armor of God, get geared up for your life in this world. And he's going to give us the reason why in verse 12. And it's very crucial that we put on this armor because of what we're going to see in verse 12. By the way, notice who the armor belongs to. Does he say, put on your armor? No, he says, put on the whole armor of of who? Of, Of God. And it's not just armor. It's the whole armor. Now, when we typically think of this, the the whole armor here, by the way, is is a compound word and it describes all your weapons, right? It's it's like, get fully geared up. Don't, Don't leave the sword at home. Don't leave your helmet at home. Don't forget your belt, right? It's like, put it all on. It's, it's, it's all the weapons, but there's, there's offensive and defensive weapons as we'll see, but the emphasis is where? on the defensive weapons. The emphasis is on the helmet, the shield, the breastplate. Those are all defensive armament as part of that sword. Now, we typically think of this, and I, and I think this is accurate, but I want to point out something in addition to. We typically think, why did Paul go to this example? And those of you that have ever studied Ephesians or ever studied the Bible, you might recall that, that at this time, Paul is in a Roman prison, 
We know that he's under house arrest, actually, is probably a better description, and that he is chained because he's a political prisoner who's appealed to Caesar that most likely he's chained around the clock to a praetorian guard. Six hours, four-hour shifts, I can't remember what it is. I think it's six-hour shifts, four different men throughout the day chained to Paul. And as they're chained to Paul, you know, <laughs> Paul rolls over, looks at him, is like, oh, look, look at their, their helmet, look at their sword. So he's starting to develop this illustration for the Christian life. I do think that's part of it. But, you know, it wasn't until I started studying this passage that I realized maybe the Old Testament had a role in this too. Go with me to Isaiah 59. Paul being a trained Pharisee, Paul being a, a man who was excelling in the Jewish religion, knew his Bible. His Bible at the time was the Old Testament, and I guarantee he knew it well. And he knew it in, in such a way that, that oftentimes these young men, especially when they studied under great rabbis, and we know that Paul studied under the rabbi of rabbis in his day, Gamaliel, that when they studied under these men, oftentimes they would be required to memorize large portions of scripture. And all due respect to the Awana program, they held nothing to what these young Jewish boys would have to memorize. Oftentimes memorizing the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, every verse. I mean, we don't even like to read through some of the genealogies in there. They, they had it all down. They had it all memorized. So we go to Isaiah 59. Look at verse 15. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, God acts. And what does God do? Well, this is uh, reflective of, of the Messiah here. And he says this, therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. And then notice verse 17, for he, the Messiah, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. You see what we see there? This is the same exact, the, the armor, the full armor we're about to read about in, in Ephesians 6 is the same armor that the Messiah wears. It is his armor. That's what we're talking about here. And I think that's a great connection. Now, typically, when you wear someone else's armor, it doesn't go that well. In fact, harken back to the story of David and King Saul when he's coming up against Goliath. You remember the story? David says, I'll take on this giant. And King Saul says, well, let me give you my armor. And what does it do? David's like clanking around. He can barely move, right? It's, it's a grown man's armor. He's just a young boy. He takes off Saul's armor. And he goes out into the battle with no armor on. Or check that. I think he had the armor of the Lord on that day. This exact armor, specifically designed and fit for him, is also an armor that, although it belongs to the Lord, it's specifically designed to fit each one of you. So that you have freedom of movement. So that when you need to throw a sling, so to speak, you've got freedom of movement. Because it fits you. It's uniquely designed for you. 
And so this is just a beautiful thing about taking on the whole armor of God. It's not the typical armor where it doesn't fit. It doesn't quite work well for you because it was designed for somebody else. It was designed for you and the Lord can tailor make it for you. And that's what he's doing here. Each one of us having this in strengthening and being, uh, having the ability to walk in the armor of God. So the use of this word, again, this whole armor is largely defensive. We'll see that as we kind of work through this the next couple of weeks. And it's a defensive posture. And I think that's telling for a couple of reasons. The first reason is we're told to put this armor on for protection. Now, when you go into battle, you typically put your armor on for many reasons. But often one reason I think of is, especially back in the day, they would, they would have archery, right? People that would shoot arrows. And oftentimes you would get hit with an arrow and not even real, not even see it coming. And oftentimes that armor is there to protect you even when you can't see what's out there. And so the importance, again, of these attacks coming on, but then we're told why. And, and, and go back to verse 11, because I want you to see uh, the flow here. Put on the whole armor of God. Notice that next word, that. Gives us a reason. It gives us a, a purpose, a reason why. We are, we are to stand. He wants us to be able to stand. And we're gonna see what that's all about. But notice it's to stand, not to advance. That's a different battle strategy. Uh, sometimes that's a battle strategy in real battles. They say, hey, we, we've taken the high ground and now we want you to stay there and keep the high ground. Just stand. Don't go anywhere. Don't go past the hill. You know, sometimes in battle, you think like if you're just advancing all the time that you're making progress, sometimes you got the high ground. You need to keep the high ground. You don't need to go any further. Stand. So it's interesting that this is the first use of the word here. And one of the things that they need to stand against is the wiles of the devil. Now, I like bringing this out because it fits really well with verse 10, but that phrase, you may be able, speaks of inherent or intrinsic ability to do something. Here's what's really cool about it. It's also passive voice. It is not your ability to stand. It is God allowing you or giving you the ability to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, it's not our power. It's the intrinsic power that resides in us that gives us this ability to stand toward the devil. And the word stand means to set or to place. The idea is that we have been placed in a position and, and the Lord is behind us holding us up so we won't fall. It's, it's this idea that we're not falling over, that we're steadfast in the way that we're standing. And we're gonna re, be reminded of this posture. If you just kind of go through, down through your passage, you're gonna see this mentioned three more times through verses 14a. You're gonna see stand, right? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Jump down um, to verse 13. That, that word withstand is a version of this word stand. And then having done all to stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore. So you see that as just a key word in this section. And so very important to understand. Now, why would you put on the whole armor of God if you're not advancing? That's a good question. And I think it provides a very insightful answer we understand it's because the battle's already been won. We need to understand as believers that the battle has been won. We need to learn how to stand in that victory. That's really the encouragement here. Jesus Christ is the victor, and now we are to respond by faith and enjoy the victory. But here's one of the reasons why we need to put on the whole armor of God. You have an enemy coming after you, 
He's got what the text, my text says, wiles. It translates the Greek word methodeia, which, which we'll see what that means. But it's, it's, you can see our word methods in there. That he's, got, that he's strategic in what he's trying to do to trip one of us, each one of us up. We're also going to see more why in verse 12. It's going to tell us that we're in a wrestling match, but not with our spouse, not with our kids, not with our boss, not with our coworkers, not with our friends, not with our family. That's not where the wrestling match is happening. Oftentimes, we misidentify our opponents in life. We, we see a human face, a human body, and we think that they're the problem. And this text is going to tell us they're not the problem. You've got bigger enemies behind them that we need to be occupied with. And there's only one level of armament that can protect you from those enemies behind. We'll kind of get into that as we get into chapter 12. But this is what we're to stand against or, or towards is actually probably a better translation of that preposition. And the idea is that, you know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to shirk away or cowtail from the enemies of God, that you can stand up with your shoulders back, head held high in the victory of Jesus Christ, and you can stand against any of the methods that the devil brings against you. But again, not in your own strength. This isn't a time to be arrogant in your own strength. This is a time to boast in the only one who can deliver you from these enemies. That's where our boast needs to be, not in ourselves, not in what we're doing for the Lord. You know, the implication is the believer can do this. Now, you think about military strategy. The whole goal, in fact, as you read through the Civil War, this comes up a lot, right? And they, they were always trying to do what? Take yonder hill. <laughs> whatever yonder hill and whatever battle it was, they always wanted to get up on the hill. Now, why is that? Because when you get to a high place, you now have what? You've got strength. You've got leverage. You've got visibility, You've got a a better strategy of attack. And guess what? Do you think the believer has a high hill that they're standing on? You think the believer has a higher position of leverage than any enemy that Satan can bring our way? Yeah, it's called chapter one, verse three. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessings in Christ, where? In the heavenlies. Chapter two, verse six You have been raised with Christ and you are seated where? In the heavenlies with Christ. See, we got the high ground. (laughs) We don't need to take the hill. Christ has already taken the hill. This is why the exhortation here, the reminder here is to stand. (laughs) You got the hill. You're on high ground. You're unified with the victor. You are unified with the strongest person on earth in the universe. So just stand. Just stand by faith and rely upon him. You know, I've got a big brother uh, who's two years older than me, and I think I've told stories like this before, but he bailed me out of so many times where, where I was writing checks with my mouth that my body could not cash with older people. And I just knew that when my big brother was near me because he was a bigger, stronger guy than me, that he would take care of business for me, and he often did. I, I love my big brother for that reason because he bailed me out of so many problems. But you know, even more than your big brother, you've got Jesus Christ standing next to you, dwelling in you, providing you with the strength. And so you can see the imagery here. We mentioned this earlier, but the devil has wiles. It, this is methods. It means that he pursues us to harm us with an orderly way that has technical procedures. I want want you to grab hold of that. I want us to grab hold of that so that we see 
the danger that we're in. You are, you are not just bopping through life. You are not just under the radar for the, your, your enemies, the Satan, the world system, your flesh. You're not just bopping on it. You are a target. Do we understand that, that we're a target? And, and you look at this description. Satan is a surgical assassin. You ever, you ever listen to military talk and they said, we made a surgical strike? What does that mean? That means they had intel. They knew where they were going to hit. And when they hit, they, they put it in the guy's kitchen, right? They, I mean, I've heard stories of military people where they put a missile in a terrorist's kitchen. How do you do that from however many feet up in the air? It's a surgical strike. Satan's the same way, surgical assassin. And the problem is, is you think, and I think oftentimes that this is a game that we can play in our own strength and we don't realize that Satan's playing chess and you're playing checkers. (laughs) If we're even playing checkers, he's definitely playing chess. He's moves ahead of us. He's surgical. He's uh, organized. He's technical. I, and he's got this, I, I believe, a tech, technical manual, if you will, developed specifically on you, de- developed specifically on me. Why? Because he is all about Jesus Christ not getting glory. And if you're carnal, and if you fail, and if your mindset is, is occupied with other things, you will not be effective for Jesus Christ. And he chalks that up as a win. And he's willing to win one person at a time. Strategically, surgically. He's got wiles. And that's why we need the armor of God. In fact, I believe that, the Satan, that Satan, the devil, has been developing a playbook over the course of history. You know, he's got an advantage over each one of us. Many of us were born, you know, sometime in the last five to six decades, right? And somewhere in there, as, as I look across the room, he's been around for 6,000 years, at least. That's when he was created. He's seen mankind. He's seen people just like you, same temperament, same strengths, same failures. And he knows what he's done over the course of the centuries to distract. And this is why you often say nothing's new under the sun. And this was why you often say temptations that have been the same since the beginning of time. That's true. And, he's, and I think he's perfected those more and more. Can we argue with the fact that the advent of technology has opened up more doors to trip believers up on a consistent basis? You know, remember when you just got the nightly news or you got the, the morning news the day after everything went on and you got a couple of articles and then remember when you got the nightly news and you got a couple of segments, an hour worth of news? Now you can turn on the news 24 hours a day. I'm not sure that's positive, <laughs> honestly. I mean, it revs, it revs you up. I mean, there, there's times you just got to flip off the news because you're just ready to like punch somebody in the face. You know, I mean, it's, it gets you intense. And there's, and there's ways like that, subtle ways. That's, that's not even necessary. That's amoral. But it's distracting from the overall purpose of Jesus Christ. And Satan knows this. He's got wiles. We've got to understand that he's orderly. He's thoughtful in these ways. Now, as we go to verse 12, notice the word for. I always like to point out these Bible study words that you can kind of recognize in your own Bible because they, they explain, they give this flow. And now he's going to give us a reason why it's imperative to put on the armor of God as if knowing that we needed it to stand against the wiles of Satan wasn't enough. He's going to give us more of a reason. He's going to give us this fact that we're wrestling somebody. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against 
powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the question for each one of us is this, did you know that as you sit here today, you are in a wrestling match? Have you ever thought of your day-to-day life that way? This is how Paul describes it here. And, he's, and he uses a present indicative. He says, it's, it's happening right now. And you're like, man, I don't feel like I'm in a wrestling match. I don't have any bruises on me. I don't, I don't feel like I'm really active. It is going on right now, but not in the way that we think. This is where I think our minds need to be adjusted because we identify our wrestling opponent incorrectly most of the time. Because everyone that we think we're wrestling against or having difficulty with right now has a human face and a human body and a name. That's typically what we do. My spouse is my enemy. Again, it's interesting that he's coming out of these interpersonal relationships section. And he's like, yeah, your enemy's not flesh and blood. It's actually all these guys. But we do. We think that. Our spouse, our boss, our kids, our grown kids, our parents, whatever. We think they are our enemy. They are not your enemy. And we need to start seeing things from a divine perspective so that we understand the nature. Because if I think a human being is my enemy, then I engage in human solutions to take care of that problem. That, and, I, and I think from a human perspective on how to handle the problems in my life and the enemies in my life. And see, this is much bigger than that. This is much bigger. We need to be convinced by this. Now, wrestling, it's an interesting word. I, I hated wrestling in middle school. We has to, you used to have to do it in PE. And if you want to get worn out in 30 seconds, try to wrestle somebody. I mean, I, was, I could not go. And the only thing that was motivating me was just sure fear that I would get made fun of in school if this kid did something to me, like body slam me. So I had to kind of stay on there. But it was the worst experience of my life. It, it felt like torture. But this is what he's described here. It's hand-to-hand combat. It's face-to-face. It's close battle. It's, it's right up in your face, you know. If you've ever seen a war movie, these are always the, the parts that I dread the most in the movie. You know, they're, they're walking toward each other and they're shooting each other. Now that's, that's bad enough, but then what happens? They say, you hear the generals call it fixed bayonets. And I'm like, oh, I just want to fast forward this part. Because what happens? Hand-to-hand combat. You got people coming all over the place. You guys swinging there, you know, just trying to survive. And you just, you put yourself in that emotional state, how frightening that would be. And yet, that's our day-to-day life on a spiritual level. We don't think about it that way. We, we just don't think about it that way. In some ways, we think we're on a playground, again, not a battleground, as Wearsby shared. Now, we, it, it is true that the devil's wiles may include other people. It's, he may utilize other people to bring harm and discouragement to you, but self-protective human armor is not the key. It's not the strategy here. It's still going back to this divine armor and being strengthened from within. In fact, seeing past these flesh and blood distractions to the real enemy is key as we go forward in our Christian life. And it's key to understand the need for the spiritual armor that he's just been describing that we need. It reminds me of a passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, that after you're a new creation in Christ, notice what he says. Therefore, from now on, from this point forward, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh now, yet now we know him thus no longer. And so you see the same encouragement is really here. Quit looking at people as your problem. Quit looking at people as your issue. We want to look past that that human and flesh distraction and understand there's much bigger problem going on 
uh, behind them. That enables us honestly to relax, and it also enables us to love people unconditionally. It actually enables us to deal with people that have hurt us rather than, than fighting back and then getting in the flesh ourselves. Um, and, and allowing them to really disturb our fellowship with the Lord. And see, it just gives us a, a proper divine perspective. And let's look quickly at who our opponents are. Again, it's not flesh and blood. It's all these um, different entities mentioned. Um, notice that they're all demonic or spiritual enemies. We have this first one, principalities. Notice, too, that they all talk about like rule and authority in some way. And we'll talk about why that's Interesting, but, but this word means rule, authority, or dominion. When it's used with the next word in the scriptures, it typically talks about demons or fallen angels. And so I think that's a good interpretation here because he's contrasting flesh and blood enemies with these enemies. And so that would make sense that it's uh, demons or fallen angels against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And, and again, it means this word ruler means literally one who holds the world, one who rules over the world. And it's used in the New Testament, not only of Satan, but it's also used of his minions, um, not the yellow kind, the bad kind, right? Uh, not, not Bob and the other one-eyed wonder over there. But also notice that the word's plural. It's, it's rulers of the dark. It's not just talking about Satan. It's talking about him and his grouping here. What do they rule over? Well, the text tells us the darkness of this age the darkness of the present age or the time period that we live in. This is kind of mind-blowing if you've never heard it before, but do you know that Satan is referred to in the Bible as the God of this world, as the ruler of this age? Jesus in John 12, 31 refers to Satan as the ruler of the world. You know, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and Satan says, I'm gonna offer, takes him up to the height of the temple and I'm gonna offer you all these kingdoms. Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, you can't do that. Because he could. He, had, he has authority over this world. And that's the beauty of the book of Revelation because one day the Lamb of God is going to take the title deed of the earth and he's going to slap it down and he's saying, this place is mine and I'm taking it back over. And that's the good news of the book of Revelation. But when we see here, Jesus talks about Satan being the ruler of the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this age. And as a result, 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so we see that, that he's got the ability because he rules over the present age to destroy and disrupt each believer from being effective for Jesus Christ. And again, our enemy is against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this really brings out the fact that these spirits are evil in disposition, they're malicious, they're wicked. They, they wrestle unfairly. Have <laughs> you ever been in an unfair fight? Ooh, that's a nightmare. That's how they fight. That's how these enemies fight us. And then notice again, this is really interesting. Notice the realm in which they're described as conducting their work. And that should jump off the page at you. Where are they doing it? Go back to verse 12. They're doing it in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. We've seen that used many times. It's fact, it's used in Ephesians 1.3. And, and what does it describe? That's the exact position where our blessings are located. That's the exact position where all of our spiritual blessings are located. And really, in union with Christ, that's where you're seated. You're seated in the heavenlies. And so they're coming after you. That's, 
The whole point of this is they are coming after us because this is where they're operating. This is where they want to distract. This is where they want to rob you of what's yours in Christ. Uh, if you picture your spiritual blessings as deposited in a bank, uh, these enemies are constantly trying to take you over another block so you don't remember the bank and what you have in Christ and tempt you with all these other things, hence the need for the spiritual armor. Let me just close by asking a couple of questions. If you had an evil, malicious, and relentless enemy that was constantly plotting and scheming to destroy you, okay, so we painted the stage, wouldn't you, number one, want to know that that's happening? And number two, wouldn't you want to know how to protect yourself? Wouldn't you begin to take precautions to protect yourself? Now, let me throw a little bit of a wrinkle. What if your enemy was invisible? What if you really didn't have the ability to find out what they're doing and how to protect yourself? But I told you that I've got something you could wear that would enable you to see them and would fully protect you. Would you need any more convincing than that to just put it on? And see, that's really the message here this morning. We've got serious, evil, wicked, malicious enemies. God has provided a way to protect you. Will you put on the whole armor of Jesus Christ? Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And and Lord, I just pray that you would convince each one of us of the value and the importance of of putting on the whole armor of God and, and that that would become an illustration that we understand how to practically benefit from. That's, that's what we want, Lord. We want, to, we want to put it on. We want to do that by faith. So teach us what that looks like in our day-to-day life and make us just convinced, not just maybe this morning or even later today, but make us convinced on Wednesday that we need this. Make us convinced on Thursday that we need this and just continually bring this truth into our thinking and when we do, Lord, we just rejoice that, to know that you'll show up and you'll show out big on our behalf in the way that you protect and care for us. We want to see that, Lord, because I know that that motivates us even more to trust you, and we hope that that's the case. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.